Thursdays are the days that I do the majority of my sermon preparation. That's kind of how the schedule, the rhythm of my schedule goes. And this past Thursday, as I sat down in preparation for this morning, I said to myself, how on earth can I write a sermon right now? I felt in that moment emotionally unhinged. Now to give some context at 11.44 a.m., so a little bit before I sat down to do this, I texted my wife, I texted Sarah and said, and I quote, well, I've screamed at every one of our kids in the last five minutes, so there's that. This week had been kind of a perfect storm in a number of ways of stressors in my life. So that holiday on Monday, which was a great day, a, a fun day, I didn't really do any work, which I guess is good, but the downside is it pushed all the stuff I had to do, crammed everything I had to do in a shorter amount of time. Um, Catherine, her daycare was off that week for a scheduled holiday for their staff. So I was responsible for taking care of her while trying to do my work. And, you know, I I had been running all over what felt like tarnation, taking kids to, you know, swim practice, taking uh, to to these work days that Elizabeth was doing uh, for for something else that she's involved in, uh, you know, doing grocery shopping, all of those things. And so my schedule had so many moving pieces that about 11.40 a.m. I just kind of snapped. I don't know if you've had these kinds of experiences where it just gets the, the... the lack of margin in life gets to you. I ran out of patience for kids who weren't listening to me. Couldn't take back the talk back of, you know, contrarian attitudes, and I just lost it. Now, I'm sure most parents can identify with the range of emotions you feel when you lose it and you yell at your kid. Initially, it's kind of fueled by this, this righteous indignation, right? That if this child would just behave, this never would have happened but then it's quickly replaced by guilt, right? That you've used your power to gain compliance in some ways at the expense of your child. And even when the dust settles, there's this kind of continuous back and forth between those two extremes. We live in a stressful world, one where I don't think we need to go very far to point to examples of toil, of pain, of conflict, a world where relationships are distorted and, and, and they lack the cohesion that God first designed when he created the universe. I mean, take, take my example that I just shared. That there was in that moment a severing of my relationship with my kids. And this came about because I had no margin. I had let the stress of life unhinge me and I was at war with myself. I was also responding in a way that was not glorifying to God. There was a disconnect in my reliance upon the Holy Spirit. All of those examples, all of those distortions are examples of the relationships that theologians say were disrupted by the fall. That event in human history when mankind took that very good world that God had created and flung it back in his face. They chose not to live for him, but for themselves. And I think that's a rhythm that we've been operating in ever since. This morning, we are continuing the next step of our journey where we're looking at the threads of God's redemption in history. The last two weeks, we've seen the paradise that God has made. And this week, we see the sowing of these roots of destruction. 
And so if you want to follow along, if you have Bibles or Bible apps and want to open up, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3 where things went horribly wrong. Now as you are turning there, I want to share something with you that I found actually pretty profound when I was first told this. It was something that I feel, you know, reading this passage a number of times, I, I, I never really grasped until it was pointed out to me. Maybe, maybe you're uh, more, more intuitive than I am and picked up on it, but the world that I had, as I said just a few moments ago, this world that God had made was very good. Those are the lang- that's the language he uses in Genesis 1, and it's intentional language. I didn't use the word perfect, because I think from Genesis 3 it shows us that the world was not perfect. Because in the first verse of chapter 3, we see that evil was present in the garden. Right? The fall, as we describe it, this action of Adam and Eve, did not bring evil into the world. It predated the fall. It was already there. Now, last week we saw that Adam and Eve were, were priests. That's the language of Genesis 2, that they were to be this priestly role in the garden. They were to work and keep guard, right, this divine sanctuary. So how would they respond to the presence of evil in the garden. So if you want to follow along, I'm going to read Genesis 3, verses 1 through 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, or in your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. 
Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and because you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove the man, he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So if you go back up to the top of that chapter, verse 1 introduces the serpent. Now initially, there is some ambiguity to his identity. Initially, he is described as a beast of the field. Only later do we see the clarity that this creature is an enemy of God. Now as we read the narrative, we see, though, that there is some foreshadowing of this truth. There are hints that something is amiss. For starters, when he first approaches Eve, he doesn't actually use God's name. Now, if you recall the last two weeks, this is an important distinction between these two stories. Genesis 1, the label that is used for God is just the Hebrew form of God, this very generic name. But in Genesis 2, we see his name inserted as well, the Lord God, God who is Yahweh. Genesis 3 is a continuation of the story that we read last week, and so that absence of the name or title of the Lord with God by the serpent's description should kind of raise our suspicions. The serpent asks what seems to be an innocent question. Right? Did God say you really can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? It's so subtle, but he's clearly misquoting God. Right? Not, not only did God not say that, But actually, he said precisely the opposite, right? Every tree, save for one, but every other tree, right? We talked last week about the language of abundance. Every other tree was given to Adam and Eve for their nourishment, their sustenance, their joy. Once we get to verse 4 and 5, his goal for mutiny becomes much clearer. Eve responds in verses 2 and 3, and she counters the, the serpent's claim. But pay close attention to her response. She responds by adding restrictions to the parameters that God had set forth. She claims that God said they they couldn't eat of one tree, right? The, 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 The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was true. That is what he said. But then she adds, neither can you touch it lest you die. God didn't say that part. She's adding here to the regulations of God. And I think there's a lot that could be said about us. Right, on how we like to embellish and escalate the commands of God. We take his restrictions, whether it be out of fear or out of control, and we, we ratchet them up. We build boundaries that God has never commanded. If we remember what we studied last week, 
when God gave the prohibition. It was actually before Eve was created. God shares these, these, these prohibitions, these standards, these commands with Adam. Eve wasn't there. But clearly, Eve knows about this ban, so one of two things has happened. Either God has restated in Eve's hearing to, uh, to share what this expectation is, or it was Adam who was responsible for letting his wife know. So we, we don't know exactly how it happened, but it provides, I think, I just want to make it clear that it provides the opportunity that Adam is the one who is miscommunicating with his wife, and perhaps, you know, it could have been him that was ratcheting up those expectations. We don't know that for sure. But the serpent counters in verses 4 and 5 going in for the kill. He says, surely you won't die. And again, in some ways, he isn't lying. After they eat the fruit, neither of them dies immediately. Right? The serpent is filled with half-truths. And isn't that the conventional wisdom that they say, right? They say the best lies have some seeds of truth in them. He says that they're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, not wrong. Their eyes are opened. But this is the great irony of the encounter. They desired to be like God. But they didn't need to eat any fruit to be like God. They were already like God. Out of all of creation, Adam and Eve were the only beings made in the image and likeness of God. We saw that in chapter 1. They already had the fingerprints of God all over their DNA. They were the divine representatives of the creator to the creation. They were already like God, but they wanted more. Now, because of hindsight, we know the precise identity of the serpent. Right? Revelation 12, 9 makes the implicit explicit. It says this, and the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Right? The serpent's goal in this encounter with Eve is to usurp the authority of God. Now, it's evident that, that Satan cannot go toe-to-toe with God directly, so in order to inflict pain upon God, he goes through the very things in the creation that God loves most, humanity. I can't remember who I first heard this from. I tried to find a citation this week, but notice that the serpent does not come to Eve with a stick. He doesn't come in a grand display of strong, hard power. He doesn't go with the full force of himself, but he instead comes to Eve with an idea. He plants the seeds of discontentment in her mind. Now, the devil's plan is as old as time, but we continue to fall for it. He slithers up next to us and plants ideas in his head, just like he did here. God is holding out on you. He doesn't love you. If he truly loved you, he would let you eat this fruit in the garden. Right? God doesn't want you to be happy. If you want to be happy, you've got to take care of it yourself. This is what the devil is saying to us today, right? God doesn't love you or he would give you whatever it is, fill in the blank. A bigger house, a boyfriend or girlfriend, better grades in your classes, more money. The list could go on. Whatever those places where we feel discontent with what God has provided for us, I think are places where the serpent comes to us to say, God's holding out on you. Instead, we should be content with what God has brought to us when he has brought it to us. Instead, we are instigated to go out and try to seize the day ourselves. Now, given this very overt inciting of a rebellion, 
against God. Adam and Eve should have known their responsibility. Right? As priests, as the temple guardians, they ought to have said precisely exactly what Jesus said to Peter on the road to Caesarea Philippi. Get behind me, Satan. Right? Humanity's role was to exercise authority over all of the beasts of the field. And that's how we see the serpent described in verse 1, a beast of the field. Adam and Eve were superior, had authority over it. They should have, their, their response to this foolish talk should have been to cast that serpent out. But that's not what happened. Look at verses 6 and 7. Adam and Eve succumb to the temptations. Now, while the serpent identified Eve to spread his propaganda, the text makes it clear that Adam's present for this as well. It says that Adam was with her when she ate and he ate. So, sin enters the world, their eyes are open, and for the first time they experience shame. They sew these leaves together to cover their nakedness from one another. Now, I, just as a kind of an interlude, I alluded to this at the beginning, but theologians label four specific relationships that were negatively affected by the fall. Each of these relationships is hindered because of sin. Humanity and God. Humanity with one another. Humanity and their self, himself, herself. And humanity and the creation. There's war between those as a result of the fall. So as we turn and we look at the consequences of, of the fall, keep these, those relationships in mind. In verse 8, the first humans hear God coming, so they hide. What a tragedy. God arrives at the meeting point and doesn't see Adam, and he calls out, Where are you? Now pause here. This is another one of these passages that I distinctly remember my atheist professor in college, my religious studies professor, citing as evidence of God's limits, right? Like clearly God can't be infinite. He doesn't know where Adam is in this moment. But that picture, that interpretation doesn't fit with the God that we see revealed through the whole of Scripture. Instead, we do see a God who is omniscient, who is all-knowing. Jesus, while he walked the earth, could know the thoughts of a person in his heart. The gospel makes that clear. Now, I'm convinced that the reason this question was asked, not because God didn't know where Adam was, it was asked because Adam didn't know where Adam was. Adam needed to come to terms with the absurd reality that he was hiding from God. God confronts Adam first, that you, where are you, is singular. And what follows is the blame game. God, you know, if we think about this, this is actually really your fault. Like, if you hadn't put this woman here, it wouldn't have happened. You know, like, Eve, Eve kicks the blame farther down the line. Like, it was the serpent. But verses 14 through 19 describe the curses that God places upon humanity and the serpent as a result of this attempted coup. And I, I don't, I'm not going to go into details. I just read it. You can read it for yourself. But I want to highlight something that I think is really important in them. Even in these negative consequences of sin, God continues to show how good he is. I've shared on multiple occasions the significance of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, what scholars call the proto-evangelium, the first gospel. Right? Hiding in this on, hidden in this ongoing feud between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of the serpent, hope is promised that there is someone who is going to come from the lineage of humanity who's going to overthrow the deceiver, who's going to strike a decisive blow for victory. 
even at the expense of his own life. Even in verse 16, as God is expressing the increased pain of childbirth, there's a blessing hidden in that, that the line of humanity would continue, right? God's not just going to wash his hands, you know, of this, hit the nuke button and start afresh, but humanity, out of death there is life coming. Death would not have the last word. Life would persist. Verse 20, Adam names Eve in light of this, that she was the mother of of the living. Now, I want to sugarcoat the curses. They're not good. Toil and futility enter our work. There's constant power struggles between Adam and Eve and their marriage. Mankind's eventually going to return to the dust of the earth from which it was formed. But God shows his character even in those consequences. And finally, in verse 21 and following, God removes Adam and Eve from the garden. Verse 21, he continues to show his provision. He fashions clothes of skin for Adam and Eve. Definitely an upgrade from their, you know, lowing cloths of foliage that they previously put together. But dwell on that for a moment. God gave them skins of animals. Now, in order for those skins to have been handed off, most likely, I mean, God could have done anything, snapped his hands and created, but most likely, this resulted in the death of animals. Think a foreshadowing of the sacrificial system. Gives a glimpse into the way in which God is already setting in motion these seeds of redemption. God still cares for them even when they've rebelled against him. He still loves them. He's still providing for them. He still clothes them. Do you all remember the, the story of the prodigal son? It's Luke chapter 15. A son basically tells his father off saying, I wish you were dead, takes his portion of the inheritance and then goes and squanders it finds himself to be broke and destitute, and he returns to his father's estate, hoping to just be one of his father's servants. Lord knows he's burned that bridge. But that's not how the father responds. The father responds with joy, right? Shrugging off the cultural shame by sprinting to his son, and what does he do? He hugs and kisses him, but while he's there, he says, bring out the family robe and sandals and the ring for his finger. Clothe him, with the family clothes. That act of clothing was the cultural equivalent of saying, yes, this man is still my son. I think in the same way here, God's act of clothing Adam and Eve shows that while they have erred egregiously, God never stopped considering them children. He's not giving up on them. He continued to pursue them, to love them, to provide for them. And then God drives them out of the garden, which Seems like a punishment, but again, I think this is to be understood as a mercy. What God is most concerned about in that moment is that Adam and Eve would eat of the tree of life and that they would live forever. And so God takes action to prevent this from happening, right? Preventing them from living forever in their sinful condition. And setting in motion events that would bring true and final restoration to his children, that one day they would be able to return to the paradise he's made. They would be able to return and eat of this fruit of the tree of life, free from the shackles of sin. That's how our chapter closes, and we'll continue next week with kind of the first, I guess the, technically the second generation, Cain and Abel. But I want to turn our attention to what this text means for us. And I want to look at two different concepts. Obedience and the faithfulness of God. Now, when we read a text like this, one of the questions that you might be asking yourself, it's one that I know I've asked myself as well, is why was the tree there in the first place? 
right? Like this prohibition against eating the fruit of this tree of, of, you know, the knowledge of good and evil, it seems so arbitrary. Why did God even give something, create something, to give them the option of screwing up? Now, to try to give some perspective of this, I want to turn to the brilliance of C.S. Lewis in his book, Paralandra. I think I've shared this example before. But it's part of the Space Trilogy, Never read the third book. I hear it's real weird. But it's the second book in the Space Trilogy. And it basically examines another iteration of this Adam and Eve story, but on another planet that takes place on Venus. In this story, it follows the Eve character, a, uh, someone named Tinadril, as, she kind of, as she's walking from floating island to floating island, waiting for the day that the Lord says that she can go to the solid continent in order to meet her mate. And along with her are two characters, a protagonist named Ransom and Weston, a man who has been possessed by the devil. Now Weston, this kind of devil man, is working constantly to subvert God's plans for Tinadril, much like we saw the serpent do with Adam and Eve. And he attempts similar persuasions as we saw the serpent give to Eve in our text. He says, like, you know that your husband is waiting for you there on the solid continent. Like, God's already told you that he's there. Why don't you just go? It seems silly for God to make you wait on his timing. Like, just go and seize the day for yourself. Like, actually, what God wants you to do is to find maturity on your own, to take that initiative on your own, right? This is the kind of uh, persuasion, the rhetoric that Weston is using. Ransom, the protagonist, responds about what might seem to be an arbitrary law in this way, and I, I just think there's such wisdom in this. He says, and I quote, I think he made one law of that kind in order that there might be obedience. In all of these other matters, what you call obeying him is but doing what seems good in your eyes also. Is love content with that? You do them indeed because they are his will, but not only because they're his will. Where can you taste the joy of obeying unless he bids you to do something for which his bidding is the only reason? Let me break that down for you. What Lewis is saying is, how is it really loving God to obey his commands if they were common sense laws anyway? Whether or not God said that you should or shouldn't do it, we wouldn't have done any differently. Lewis is saying that's not like real obedience because we would have just kind of done that naturally. Love of God, Lewis argues, is displayed through our obedience to something that doesn't make sense. And the only reason we do it is because God is the one who has instructed it to us. That, Lewis says, is a display of love, of affection. And so as we consider this question of why was this tree and its prohibition in the garden, I think it's possible that it was for the sake of obedience. When we obey God, is it for our own glory, or is it God's? Do we go through the motions of life in ways that are pleasing to him because we receive the benefit, or because of our love of God? I think if we're honest with ourselves, it's often the former more than the latter. We go through these motions, we go through these things that are good, and we should keep doing those things. But they they aren't the strongest display of love, strongest display of obedience. But this leads me to my second take-home. 
God's faithfulness. Adam and Eve messed up, but God did not abandon them to their sinful decisions. In the same way, we are not left to our own devices. Even when we royally screw up, God shows us his mercy, he shows us his grace. Mercy basically means that we don't get what we deserve. And his grace means we get something that we don't necessarily deserve. We're not owed. And that is the heart of the gospel that through the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are given freedom. We don't receive the righteous judgment that we deserve for our rebellion against God. Because while Adam and Eve sinned, we have continued to sin. We have continued to stage these coups day in and day out. And it's a mercy that we don't receive, that God didn't hit that, hit that reset button. You know, Did you turn it off and turn it back on if it's not working, right? But we also receive his grace. Just as Adam and Eve were clothed with new garments of animal skins, we also have been clothed. The Bible tells us that we've been clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so I hope that this whole scenario, while it is you know, kind of depressing because it's like, man, the world is screwed up because of this, but that it should reveal to us that there is no lost cause. There is no path that we can go down that God cannot or is not willing to bring us back from. The moment that sin first entered the world, God was working on a pathway back to himself through the sacrifices of his son, Jesus Christ. In fact, um, Dan, Craig, and I on Tuesday at small group, we kind of went off off script, didn't actually study our content. So we're starting 1 Peter this Tuesday uh, in two days. But we actually talked about this, right? Because there's a stream of, of thinking that's decide, like, considers, did God ordain the fall? Was the fall God's plan or not? And again, it's superlapsarian, infralapsarian, I don't remember which is which. Uh, I don't need to go into that necessarily, but out of that, kind of another way you could think about it is, is the cross plan B? Was the cross, Jesus going to the cross to redeem humanity to himself, the plan all along or not? Again, I I don't have answers to that. I I have ideas about that. I don't have the answers. But I think what we've seen, given that this is how history has worked out, we can always play the what-if game, but we have fallen. And when God comes to us, when Jesus redeems us back to himself, and Craig made this point on Tuesday when we were talking, when you've been living in a, a dark room for a long time and you go and see the light, you appreciate the light. Right? You've seen videos of, of the, the, you know, kids who have uh, surgery on their ears because they're born deaf or hard of hearing, and the joy that they have the first time that they can hear their mother's voice. That's the language that the Bible uses, right? That we were blind, but now we see. We were deaf, but now we can hear. Through the redemption of Jesus, we can see more beautifully that that joy that God brings to us. So as we consider these these truths this week, here are some some questions for us to, to reflect on. First is this, where do you see the consequences of the fall most vividly in your everyday experience? Remember, those four relationships, right, that we're kind of at war with God, we're at war with one another, we're at war with ourself, at war with creation. Where do you see, it doesn't have to be one of those four, but where do you see the consequences of the fall most vividly displayed in your everyday experiences? 
Secondly, which of God's laws seem to be arbitrary to you? Which of the laws as you read, they're like, I, I don't understand why you command this. It doesn't make sense to me. And so what might, where might we get a lesson from that? Where might we learn obedience, or what might we learn from obedience to this command? And then lastly, meditate on Romans 8.1, right, which is this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I just encourage you to reflect on the grace and mercy that you've received from God from your own rebellion against him. Why don't you join me in prayer? Lord, we come to you grateful for your mercy and your grace. Lord, that even though Adam and Eve made some boneheaded decisions and we continue to make boneheaded decisions like yelling at our kids on a Thursday morning, Lord, there is grace for us that you call us back to yourself, that that which was ruptured, that which was broken, you seek to repair. And so, Lord, we pray that you would continue to reveal to us the ways in which we are growing closer to you, that we are better equipped to love our neighbors, to love our family members, our friends. Lord, ourselves, creation. God, you are in the habit of restoring things that are broken. You're not one to just throw something to the trash heap and say it's a lost cause. I'm just going to start from scratch. Lord, you take and, and uh, rehabilitate us. May we continue to rest in that mercy and grace that we've received in Jesus. And may we continue to showcase our love to you through our obedience. Not just because of the benefit we receive, God, but because it's a way that we can say thank you. A way that we can express our love to you. God, we pray this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.